0: This episode of Lex Out Loud is brought to you by the patrons of Starwalker Studios. Learn how you can support the show at lexstarwalker.com/support. Welcome to episode 43 of Lex Out Loud, Writing Science Fiction. I'm your host Lex Starwalker. This is a podcast for writers, readers, and all lovers of speculative fiction. I'm writing my third novel and taking you along for the ride. Today, I'm going to share the ideal word counts for a debut sci-fi or fantasy novel. After that, I'll talk a bit about what I've learned as a writer from The Wheel of Time. So welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome back. Sending out uh, encouragement to all of those of you writing away for NaNoWriMo or or just writing away for whatever reason. Keep at it, keep going. I've been doing quite well myself, still keeping my daily writing goal, 1,000 words a day, six days a week. Uh, I believe I'm on the fifth week in a row doing that now. So since uh, I changed my goal to 1,000 words I've not missed it once. So feeling really good about that. I'm still posting my progress in the show notes at LexStarWalker.com. So you can see uh, my progress bar go up uh, with each episode as I add more words to the product, product, project, it's not a product yet. As of recording, I am now north of 80,000 words And right now, my kind of soft goal for the first draft is around 115,000 words. So I'm, I think I'm like 69% or 71% of the way there at, at this moment that I'm recording this. By the time you listen to this, I'll be quite a bit further than that, probably. But yeah, it's going well and looking like I'm on track to finish the first draft by the end of December, maybe even by mid-December, which would be awesome. And then my plan at that point is once I finish the first draft, I'm going to take probably about two months off of that project before I start editing it for the second draft. And then uh, during that, that time, I'm going to start on the next book. So if I finish this by the end of December, that means... That, in March, I will start editing this book, and at that point, I will be editing the first book and writing the second book. So, I'm actually really looking forward to that because i've never I've never done that before i've I've never had two books in the works at the same time make makes me feel like a like a real writer, so that'll be really cool so yeah, you know, maybe the uh, content of this change may, or this show may change uh, and shift a bit as as I start editing. Maybe I'll, I'll have things to talk about with that. I, I don't know. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a challenge and um, it'll just be that much more time every day I spend writing. And I was talking about this in our Discord server this week, but I think I, I may be a little unusual in that I actually enjoy editing. It seems like a a lot of writers that I hear talk about writing seem to not like editing a whole lot. They they much prefer actually writing to editing and and a lot of them even really dislike editing. So I may be a, a little odd in that way in that I enjoy editing and I actually think that editing is a lot easier than than writing, uh, especially when you're talking about writing a first draft. You know, it's just kind of that thing of polishing something that's already there, improving something that that you've already created. At least to me, is a lot easier than creating the thing to begin with. So I'm looking forward to editing the book, and and honestly, more than that, I'm I'm just looking forward to be done <laughs> being done with the first draft. But yeah, by the time I start editing this book, probably in March, um, I should be well into the first draft of, of the next book. So as of now, I have no idea what the next book is going to be. Um, I'm thinking that it will probably involve at least some of the main characters from this book. So I guess in that way it, it will be a series. I, I just plan to write a bunch of books in this setting that I've created, but my intention is for every book. To be standalone. so so it's not going to be like a trilogy or a series in the sense that you know you need to start with book one and and read them in order or anything like that. I mean, um, they will advance chronologically. But at least right now, my my intent is, you know, the second book will be uh, its own thing. and the only relation that it will have to the first book is that it will be in the same setting. And it will involve some of the same characters, but they each will be standalone stories. So yeah, that's the plan. And yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. So it'll feel really good to get this uh, first draft done. As far as what I've been into lately, uh, I really only have one new thing to report. And that's, I, I've started watching a new television show that I'm really, really enjoying. Um, it's called Only Murders in the Building. It's a comedy. It's on Hulu, I believe. Uh, if you're outside the U.S., it's on Star, and it stars uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. Tina Fey makes some appearances, and it's just a wonderful, funny show. I'm I'm really enjoying it, and it's rare that I find comedies that I really like. Uh, it seems so often that comedies are just kind of dumb. And it's kind of dumb humor and, and just kind of dumb and ridiculous and kind of unbelievable as far as the, the drama of the show and whatnot. Um, so a lot of times I I have a hard time finding comedies I can really get into for that reason. Um, so th- when I occasionally find one that I really like, it's kind of a gem for me. I think the last comedy I remember really liking uh, was The Good Place, which was fantastic. I really enjoyed that show, and that's uh, over with now. And then another one I really liked, even further back, was Bored to Death, which also was hilarious. And it's kind of interesting because both of those shows had Ted Danson in them, which I think he's great at comedy. So, anyway, uh, Only Murders in the Building is a fantastic show. I really hope there's another season. I, I'm only about halfway through it. I could easily binge this show in one day, but I force myself only to watch one episode a day just because I want it to last. I just really enjoy it. And I think I'm actually gonna be kind of sad when I finish the final episode because um, I, I enjoy it so much. So if you're in the mood for for a good comedy or just a good show in general, check it out. I really like it. All right, so we're gonna try and do two topics today. Hopefully I can do it without the episode getting too long because I don't think I have enough to say about either one of these to make a full episode by themselves. So we're gonna to try to do them together. Uh, the first one, and, and I don't wanna spend a lot of time on this because I've already talked about it quite a bit here and there in previous episodes, is I thought I'd talk a little bit about science fiction and fantasy novel word counts. So my main source for this, as far as the information I'm giving you today, is an article on writersdigest.com. It was originally published in 2016, but they occasionally updated it, or they occasionally update it. It was last updated in February of 2021 as of recording. So hopefully they will uh, continue to keep updating this, because these things do change a bit over time. Now, I've done a lot of research over the years into this topic beyond just this article. I just, uh, for right now, I think this is the best uh, single place for you to go to to get informed. So just a couple points I wanna make here is first of all, word count does matter. If you're writing a book that you wanna get published for your debut novel, which is to say your first published novel, word count is extremely important. It costs money to produce a book and in general, the longer a book is, the more money it's going to cost to produce it. As a new writer who's never been published before by a publisher, you are an unknown commodity to a publisher. They are taking a risk on you when they buy your book. So for them, this is, and it has to be a calculated risk, right? They they do a cost-benefit analysis and they have to think that, that the risk is worth it taking you on and, and publishing your book. Um, And again, I, m- I mentioned this in a previous episode, but the thing to keep in mind is they're not just thinking about the book that you just wrote and you sent them. They're They're never going to, unless your book just blows up, they're never going to get their money back from their investment if that's all you ever do. They are counting on you continuing to produce books for them into the future. So it's not just about how good is this book you just finished that you sent them that they've decided to buy from you? It's also about what are you gonna be able to do for them in the future? Are you going to be able to continue to write books for them that are as good or better than the one you just wrote? So as I said, you know when they decide to take you on, this, this has to be a calculated risk for them. And the length of your novel in word count and where that falls on the spectrum of the accepted standards for the genre that your book falls in is a very important variable in that calculation of whether you're worth the risk. So I've heard a lot of interviews with agents and with editors, and a very common question that's almost always asked of them is, what is the number one reason that you reject a book from a new writer, that you choose not to publish it? And usually the number one reason is not following the submission guidelines, which we uh, talked about in the recent episode on uh, manuscript best practices. But the second reason after that is almost always falling outside of the recommended word count. So you will get rejected for that. So again, the word count that that is acceptable will depend on your genre and your subgenre. They're They're all different. So you can't take the numbers from one genre and apply them or assume that they apply to another genre. Another thing to keep in mind is the industry and the market is constantly changing. So you want to find the most up-to-date information that you can. What was true 10 years ago probably isn't true now. What was true a year ago may not be true now. So if you're looking at an article or some source from multiple years ago, it may no longer be true. Again, this matters most for a debut novel, which is to say you know, the first novel that you've published or the first novel you've published with that particular publisher. Once you have a publisher and you have put out one or more novels with them, then you're more of a known commodity for them. They, they know more what you can do and what to expect from you. You have a relationship with them now and they have an idea of how well your books are going to sell based on the previous books you've done for them. So this is why you don't wanna look at books by established writers and think that what they did will apply to you. You know, there are books that, that are exceptions to these word counts that are less or usually more than that. But these are books usually that are being written by established writers. So Stephen King can probably write as long as a, of a book as he wants within reason and his publisher is gonna publish it because he's Stephen King and they know even if this book is ridiculously long, it will sell very well because he's Stephen King. But that doesn't mean that you or I as a, you know, with our debut novel are going to be able to do the same thing. So I'll let you know as I discuss it, which genres this article covers, but I'm not going to go into detail on all of these genres. So if you want to know more about one of the genres I don't discuss, uh, go check out the article And the article is linked in the show notes at likestarwalker.com. Now, there's a very important note here that the article points out. There are always exceptions to the rules, including these guideline word counts. So there will be exceptions. There will be books that fall outside of these, even debut novels that fall outside of these. However, if you're smart, you want to plan on being the rule, not the exception, So remember my philosophy I've talked about in in previous episodes that I have for trying to get published is that I want to do everything I can to increase my odds of success, and I don't want to do anything that is going to decrease those odds. And, you know, if you're serious about getting published, you should have a similar philosophy. So here's a quote from, from the article, aiming to be the exception is setting yourself up for disappointment. What write, writers fail to see is that for every successful exception to the rule, for example, a first-time 175,000-word novel, there are at least 100 failures, if not 300. So again, if, if you want to succeed, don't, don't plan on being the exception. Don't think that you can write a book that's longer than these guidelines or shorter and that it'll be fine and you'll get published. You're, the odds of that happening are, are very, very small. Now, since I talk about science fiction a lot on this show, I'm going to assume that most, if not all of you, are probably writing sci-fi or fantasy. For whatever reason, a new writer in these genres is most likely to go too long instead of too short. So here's what the article has to say about going too long, and I quote, Almost always, high word count means that the writer simply did not edit their work down enough or it means they have two or more books combined into one. So again, that isn't going to make you look good to an editor or an agent or a publisher that that you haven't done your due diligent to your due diligence to edit your manuscript down to the acceptable length. So you want to make as good of an impression as you can. You don't want to be doing anything that's going to make a bad impression. All right, so just to establish a benchmark for us, here are the figures for commercial and literary fiction, which again is not what I'm doing, is not really what I talk about on on the podcast, but it's a good place to start to kind of get us calibrated here. So the not or the article says between 80,000 and 89,999 words is a good range you should be aiming for. So between 80,000 and less than 90,000 words. This is a 100% safe range for literary, mainstream, women's romance, mystery, suspense, thriller, and horror. Anything in this word count won't scare off any agent anywhere. Now, speaking broadly, you could have as few as 71,000 words or as many as 109,000 words, and that is the total range. So 80 to 89,000 words is the ideal But you could go as low as 71,000 words or as high as 109,000 words. When it dips below 80,000 words, it might be perceived as too short, not giving the reader enough. It seems as though going over 100,000 is all right, but you don't want to go above that by very much. The author of the article suggests stopping at 109,000 because there's just a mental hurdle to jump when you get to 110,000 and it you know the the brain notices nice round numbers like that so that's just another thing you don't want to deal with so 109,000 is perceived as significantly less than 110,000 you know this is why you know all your prices for things are like 999 instead of $10 because of of this perception agent Rochelle Gardner points out that when discussing word count anything over 110,000 words is considered an epic or a saga. She also mentions that passing 100,000 words means that it's going to be a more expensive book to produce um, if we're talking physical books here, and therefore agents and editors kind of resist such lengths. So in short, if you're talking commercial or literary fiction, which includes romance, mystery, suspense, thriller, horror, 80 to 89,000 is totally cool. 90 to 99,000 is generally safe. 70 to 79,000 might be too short, but you're probably okay. And then 100,000 to 109,000, it might be too long, but you're probably okay. Below 70,000 is too short and 110,000 or above is too long. And again, this is what it is. So so if you're writing one of those genres, you want to you want to fall in within that range, and and preferably you want to be within that ideal range. All right. So now let's talk about sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, these are the same um, as far as the numbers, whether you're talking science fiction or fantasy. And this is where I'm at. So so this is what I'm focused on, and since this is what the podcast is focused on, this is where I assume most of you are at. So science fiction and fantasy are also or are, are actually. Pretty big exceptions to the general rule, uh, which I just told you what the general rule was, um, which was eighty to ninety thousand, basically is, is kind of the sweet spot for for all those other genres we just talked about, and most other genres are somewhere close to that. Most of them are actually, if they're different than that, they're a little shorter. Like for instance, YA and middle grade are, are less than that. But again, if if you're interested in those numbers, check out the article. So science fiction and fantasy are an exception. Because they actually tend to be longer than that, more words than that. And the reason it's given for this is because these genres have so much more world building involved than other genres. Because if you're talking science fiction or fantasy, it's usually a setting that's in some way uh, significantly different from, from our world today. So there's a lot more world building that you need to do and a lot more uh, descriptions usually in those books. So they tend to run longer and and they have longer accepted word counts than other genres. So with these genres, sci-fi or fantasy, the article recommends between 100,000 and 115,000 as an excellent range. So the problem here, and I I already mentioned this, is writers in sci-fi and fantasy tend to know that these genres run long, so they tend to make their books really long, as in way too long, and they hurt their chances. There is absolutely nothing wrong with keeping your book short, say 105,000, which is what I'm trying to do. In these genres, it shows that you can whittle your work down and and that you're willing to edit and kill your darlings and all that good stuff. So again, in sci-fi and fantasy, your ideal range where, you know, if you want to hit the ideal, um, you want to be somewhere in 100,000 to 115,000 words in length. Outside of that, uh, the article says 90 to 100,000 is probably okay. Or if you want to go above that, 115 to 124,000 is probably okay too. But you want to really try to keep it in that ideal range of 100 to 115,000. So me personally, for my book, for the first draft, I am shooting for 115,000 or less. As long as my first draft is longer than 100,000 and 115,000 or less, I'll be pretty happy with that. I actually hope, really hope for the final draft to be right in that kind of lower sweet spot of 105,000 because I would like the the book to be a little bit on the shorter end of that range because I want the book to be as lean as possible while still telling the story I want to tell and doing all the things I want to do with the book. I I don't want there to be any bloat in the book at all. I, you know, if I could make it 105,000 words exactly, I would do that. Or maybe even a little less, as long as it was more than 100,000. Because the shorter the book is within that range, the easier it is going to be to sell, um, the less money it's going to cost to produce. Not only is it going to be easier for you to get an agent or to represent it or an editor to buy it, it's going to be easier for them to sell it to a bookstore because it's going to take less space on the shelf. It's going to cost less for them to produce et cetera, et cetera. Also, you know, I think there's something to be said for keeping your first novel as short as possible, because again, not, not only are you an unknown commodity to the publisher, but you're an unknown commodity to the reader as well. And I know myself personally, if I'm going to pick up a book, that's the first book by an author that I've never read before, I am much more likely to take a chance on that book if it's shorter than if it's longer. So, yeah. And and then the other thing is, is just I I personally think within both fantasy and and sci-fi, I think this is more of the thing in fantasy, but I also see it in sci-fi, is there is a tendency for these books to be kind of bloated, where it seems like there's kind of some stuff in the book that really doesn't need to be there. It could be trimmed down. And I think it's this thing of everybody kind of knows that sci-fi and fantasy books tend to be longer. So writers just kind of shoot for longer lengths. And sometimes, at least to me, they seem a little bloated. Like, I feel like there's some more fat that could have been trimmed off that book. And I really don't want my book to be like that. I really want it to be, you know, as lean as possible, like I said, and, and just to the point and concise. And also, you know, every word takes time to write. And I would much rather write a 105,000-word book and be working on the next book that much sooner than write you know, 124,000 word book and it takes me longer to write and edit and all those things and, and I'm writing less books in a given amount of time. And yeah, I just think that there is, and it's not just me, I don't think, but I think there is this perception, especially in fantasy, but in sci-fi as well, that these books tend to be a little bloated. So I think if, if you, or if I keep my my book on, on the shorter end of the scale, that, that that will actually be seen as a good thing by a lot of readers, especially for the first book. Now, if I'm doing a series and I'm a few books in, you know, by then the the readers are invested. And at that point, a longer book is often seen as, as a better thing. You know, I'm a huge fan of the Wheel of Time. And, you know, you'll hear people complain about how long those books are, but personally, I loved the fact that they were so long and I love the fact that there were so many of them because I love the story and I love the character and I love the world so much. I just wanted more and more and more. So there was really no such thing to me as a Wheel of Time book that was too long as long as it didn't get boring and continued to be interesting. But again, you know, that's not the first book. And and the first book, The, the Eye of the World, was... One of, I don't know if it was the shortest book in in the series, but it was one of the shorter ones, and they did tend to get longer as you got further in the series. So other genres that are covered in this article that I'm not going to talk about today, but you can check out the article if you want to learn more, are middle grade, YA, which is young adult, picture books, westerns, and memoir. All right, for our next topic today, I wanted to talk a little bit about The Wheel of Time, now, I believe when this episode comes out, the Wheel of Time TV show will either have just come out or it will soon be coming out. It's coming out on Amazon Prime on November 19th. And if I remember right, they're releasing two episodes on the 19th. And then it's gonna, they're gonna be releasing episodes every week after that, I think. So I thought this would be a good time to talk about the books in more detail, I've mentioned them here and there a lot on the podcast because The Wheel of Time is hands down, no contest, my favorite science or science fiction, my favorite fantasy series of all time. I would actually argue, or I think you could argue, that The Wheel of Time could be categorized as science fantasy or sci fi fantasy, however you want to say it. I don't know that I would go that far. I, I think I would just say it's fantasy but it does have some kind of science fantasy elements to it, especially the more you get into the series. But it's in general, it's, it's a fantasy series. It uses fantasy tropes and things like that. So as I said, it's my fa- favorite fantasy series of all time. And I learned a lot as a writer from the series, from the author, Robert Jordan, which was his pen name, I, I Don't remember his actual name off the top of my head, but that's how you'll find information about him online is is Robert Jordan. I learned a lot from him and how he wrote. I've read the entire series, I think four or five times. And then some, the earlier books I've read way more than that. I don't know how many times because once I was caught up with the ones that had been published, I tended to, every time a new book came out, I would reread all the previous books. So The Eye of the World, I've probably read like 10 times at least. So I've read it a lot and I learned a lot from it. So I thought today to celebrate this TV show coming out, which, you know, as of recording this, it hasn't come out yet, but I've been keeping up on it. I've seen the trailers and it looks awesome. I think it's going to be great. So to celebrate that, I thought I would talk about some of the things that I've learned as a writer from from the books. So the first big thing, and and I think this is something you'll hear talked about, and anyone who talks about the Wheel of Time from a writing perspective, they're definitely going to talk about this, and it will probably a lot of times be the first thing they talk about, and that is how Robert Jordan uses the third-person limited point of view. Now, I did a whole episode on point of view. If you're not sure what third-person limited means um, or you want to know more about that, go check out that episode. I will link it in the show notes. So, Robert Jordan does does a fantastic job with third-person limited point of view in that whenever we're being told the story, who ever point of view we're in, and he has numerous points of view characters in the book, books, we always see the world through that character's eyes. So, the point of view character that, that we're being told the story from at a, at a given time colors what they see, what we see, and how they see it or how how we see it. In other words, what you describe and how you describe it. So if you're going to have more than one point of view character in your book, there should be a noticeable difference between how each character sees and describes the world around them and how they they are telling you the story. Even if you just have one point of view character, that character's experience and personality should affect how the story is told, how things are described. So characterization, establishing your character and who they are and what they are like, done through dialogue and action is pretty obvious. Those are both pretty obvious and and most decent books are are going to do that. They're gonna um, show you what kind of person this character is through the things that they say and the things that they do. But you can also do this through your descriptions and the actual narration of the story if you're doing third person limited, as long as you stay in the point of view. So, you know, if you're telling a scene through a given character's point of view, you ask yourself, how would this character see this scene? How would they describe it to someone else? What would stand out to them? What would they notice first? What might they miss or or overlook? What might they interpret differently than the average person would? And then you can leverage those things to really bring out who this character is just through the way they describe what they're seeing and the way they, they are telling you the story. Now, I should also point out that you can do a lot of this stuff as well in first person, these kinds of uh, showing the character through how they are telling you the story. Most, if not all of this stuff works just as well in first person too, but I'm talking about third person limited because that's what the Wheel of Time is. So things you can draw on here include the character's hobbies, their areas of expertise and knowledge, their profession, things like that. Also things like the character's prejudices, biases, and things like that. So all of those things are going to color the way the character sees the world and and are going to color the way you tell the story through that character's eyes. So then when you change point of view characters, if you do that in your book, then all of this is going to change because now you're in a different person's eyes and and all these things are gonna be different. The things that they're interested in, their hobbies, their areas of expertise, prejudices and biases they have will all most likely be different when you go from one character to another. So the way the story is told will, will be different as well. So a fun exercise that you can use to practice this is to take a scene in your story and describe the same scene from different characters' points of view. How different can you make each description while still describing the same things? Remember, you don't have to describe the same elements with each point of view. So different characters might notice different things in the scene and talk about different things. So, you know, with character A, you might describe totally different elements of the location than you would with character B, depending on what each character would notice or would think is important. Different characters will have different priorities for what they consider the most important things to notice and to describe. So that was the first big thing that I learned from the Wheel of Time and I continue to learn anytime I read those books because Robert Jordan does this very, very well. There's a great scene, and I don't remember offhand which book it's in, but you should read them all anyway, where one of the characters who is a blacksmith goes into this abandoned village and he is noticing certain things that he's using to deduce how long it's been since the people left the village. And these are all things that that a blacksmith would notice. So he notices the amount of rust on the tools that are laying around outside. Another character in the same scene also comes to the same deduction as far as how long the people have been gone but she notices completely different things than Perrin does because she's not a blacksmith. So she instead knows notices the types of curtains in the windows and and you know what season those curtains are appropriate to. So, you know, these two characters are noticing different things in the same scene based on who they are and what's important to them and, and what their eyes have been trained to see. And this kind of thing is everywhere in the books all the time. So the next thing I I learned from the Wheel of Time books was how to use vivid descriptions of people and places that really can paint a mental picture in the reader's mind. Now, I would say, and I I think most writers would agree with me, that descriptions are very important in any story that you tell. The more you you can describe things and the more you can paint a picture in the reader's mind, the more invested the reader is. Going to be in the story, the more they're, they're gonna feel like this is a real thing. So that said, I think it's even more important in genres like sci-fi and fantasy. Um, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the word count because of the world building involved. You know, if if you're reading just a, a horror novel that's set in the current day, you know, there's not a lot of world building you need to get across to the reader. Um, not a lot of information about the setting. Because a lot of it is stuff they know. So they know what a cell phone is. They know what a skyscraper looks like. They know what a stoplight looks like and what it does and how it works and all those things. You don't have to explain those things to the reader because you're talking about the world that we all live in. But when you're talking about a science fiction or a fantasy book, now you're talking about a world that is a lot different probably than the world we live in. So there are a lot more things that you're going to have to explain. I think this may be even more true for sci-fi than fantasy because, you know, a lot of times fantasy is at least somewhat based on things from the past, and so there are still things that you won't have to explain. Like, you don't have to explain what a horse is. You know, even though most of us don't ride horses these days, we still know what horses are, we know what a saddle is, we know what a bit and bridle is, we know what stirrups are. You don't have to explain those things usually. Now, with sci-fi, especially if you're going pretty far into the future, there's going to be a lot more things that you are going to have to explain. But even in fantasy, you know, you're probably going to have magic and, you know, you may have creatures that that don't exist and aren't part of our mythology that you will have to explain. So in both these genres, you're going to have more need of description just so that the reader knows what's going on, much rather to really um, make the story and the setting and the characters vivid to them. So this is partly a thing of style, how much description you're going to have, what you're going to describe, what you're not, and to what degree you're going to describe things. So the Wheel of Time books, I think most people would agree, are quite description heavy, um, especially compared to a lot of books, you know, being published today in the current day. Maybe even more so than you want. We, we get very uh, very intricate details about what the buildings look like, what the clothes people wear look like, things like that. Contrast that with many, many books that are written today where you know the clothes that the characters wear are, are never described, or, or if they are in only the most basic way. There are so many books I've read in the last, I don't know, 10 years where the main characters is never described at all. You don't know what color their hair is. You don't know what color their eyes are. You don't know what kind of clothes they're wearing. Nothing. Um, there are even books where none of the characters are described or the de- descriptions, you know, tell you what color their hair is maybe, and that's it. They don't tell you what their hairstyle is or what their clothes look like or or anything like that. So it's not so much a thing of there's a right and wrong answer as far as what you should describe and how much. A, a lot of it comes down to style, the writing style of the writer. And different readers have different preferences for how much description they want or or don't want. Now, personally, as far as my my own opinion, I think a lot of recently published books are very lacking in description and too much so. Like um, they need more. I've read numerous books, like I just said, where I have no idea what the main character looks like, or for that matter, any of the characters. Uh, science fiction books with spaceships where they're never described at all. I have no idea what these spaceships look like or space stations. I have no idea what the space stations look like. I'd kind of like to know that. And in a way, I think this is even worse than not describing characters because I mean, we at least know what a human being looks like. And, you know, maybe it's not important to the story what this character's hair or eye color is or how they dress. So, you know, we can just fill in the blanks as a reader with whatever we want. But if you have spaceships in your story, I have no idea what that looks like and unless you tell me. Now, some people will argue that not describing the main character of the book, um, the main point of view character, can be a good thing because it lets the reader see that character however they wish. And that can be seen as a, as a good thing. But I think as writers, we're here to tell a story and we should give the reader a good story, as good of a story as we can. And I think description is an important part of that. But again, we all know what human beings look like. So maybe you can get away with leaving that out. Again, it's a thing of style and, and what you you want to do. Um, it also, you know, it doesn't matter to the story. You know, if it doesn't really matter to the story what color your character's hair, skin, or eyes are, then maybe there's no need to describe it. And you can let the reader picture whatever they want. I mean, hell, at least... Uh, If your book's ever made into a movie, it'll make the casting easier because you don't have to deal with people. You know, for instance, in The Wheel of Time, Rand has red hair. And so if they cast someone who doesn't have red hair as Rand, you're going to have people saying, wait, this guy doesn't have red hair. How can he be Rand? Even though I would argue the color of Rand's hair is the least important thing about him. Now, it does have some importance because The Wheel of Time deals a lot with um, the character's kind of, I I guess you could say ethnicity and how different people from different parts of the world have different features. And you can kind of use that to know where someone's from. And some of the characters don't look like they're from where they are from, and that's part of their backstory. But even still, you know, in a lot of books, that's not even a thing. But in the real time, that's a thing where, where how characters look a lot of times is relevant to the story. But even still, if you're talking about a TV show or a movie, um, I think the how well the actor can act and how well they can bring that character to life is way more important than what they look like. I mean, if it's really important, they can wear a wig or they can wear contacts if, you know, you really gotta have the hair or the eye color the same. Now, an exception to this, of course, is when it comes to ethnicity, you know, because, you know, movies and TV and and also publishing uh historically and and even still are very dominated by men and very dominated by white men and white people. So that is kind of a separate issue where, for instance, if in a book a character is Japanese and you're gonna make a movie of it, you know, you should really try to find a Japanese actor to play that character because casting that character with a white actor is, is not going to sit well with a lot of people because it's harder for a japanese actor to to get parts than it is for a white actor just because of of racism and bias and so when you have a part that calls for a japanese actor you should really use a japanese actor if you at all can, can you know um but but that's a totally separate issue that's not really what i'm talking about so yeah maybe in your book you you can get away with not describing the main character or even any of the characters if it if it doesn't really matter And then that allows more readers to see themselves in the main character if that's something they want. So so that can be seen as a good thing. Um, But things like spaceships, space stations, aliens, magical creatures, and things like that that don't exist in the real world, you should describe those to the reader and give them a good mental picture of what that thing is. Descriptions should be evocative. I love Stephen King's advice that he gives on this in on writing, where he suggests uh, just picking a few distinctive, interesting things about the person or the object or the location to describe, and then let the reader fill in the rest. Now, this is not what Robert Jordan tends to do. He tends to paint a picture, and you know he'll tell you what the character's eyes and hair and skin look like, what their height is in general terms. He doesn't give measurements, but you know whether they're tall or short. Um, whether they're thin or thick, he'll describe their their clothes in great detail because um, all of the different countries in the Wheel of Time have very distinct fashions when it comes to what their clothes look like. Um, so he definitely will tend to give you a lot more than just a few interesting things when he's describing a character. But again, these books tend to be description heavy, especially by today's standards, and, and they were written quite a while ago. So it was a different time. But I think Stephen King's advice of pick a few things about this person, this place, or this object that are especially interesting or unique, just describe those and then let the reader fill in the rest. I think that's a great kind of middle ground between way too much description and not enough description. It gives you kind of that sweet spot where it's enough to get the reader on the same page with the writer as far as what this thing looks like and you're describing the most interesting things about it, but then you're letting them fill in the more mundane details that don't really matter. And again, if there's something about the description that matters to the story, then you would want that to be one of the few things that you describe and hopefully it's something interesting. So notice here, we don't need a paragraph long description. We can do it in a single sentence if we're just describing two or three or four things. So I think picking two to three unique, interesting things about whatever you're describing is a really great place to start. As a reader, personally, lack of descriptions often come across as lazy writing to me. Whether or not that's true, that's just the perception I often have when I feel a book is really lacking in description. I'm not saying that's why the descriptions aren't there. I'm not saying the writer was actually being lazy. That's just sometimes is my perception. It's like the writer just couldn't be bothered to describe any of the characters or the main character or the unusual technology or anything like that. Like it was just too much effort. Now, personally, when I'm writing, description is something I think a lot about in the second draft and and later drafts after that. When I'm writing the first draft, I'm really just trying to get the broad strokes, the action and the dialogue is my main focus then. And I will only include descriptions as they occur to me or or when I think they're really important, but it's not really my focus in the first draft. I'm just trying to get the broad strokes of what's happening, what are people saying, things like that. So I know that that's true about me. So when I start doing the second draft and drafts after that, I am always on the lookout for descriptions that are missing or things that I never described that I should describe because I know in the first draft, I tend to overlook a lot of things. So as I'm reading the first draft and I'm editing it or or any later draft, I'm always looking for, is this something I should describe? Especially, like I said, if it's a science fiction element that's some advanced technology or something that that we don't have today or that most people aren't familiar with today, then I will try to describe that. Now, personally, and I, I think, I hope a lot of or most or all writers would agree with me here, I think that the time when you should describe something, whether it's a character, a location, an object, a spaceship, whatever, is the first time you introduce it to the reader. So if you are going to describe a character, then you should describe that character the first time they come into the story. If you're going to describe a spaceship, you should describe it the first time the reader encounters it in the story. Or another way to look at it is the first time the point of view character sees that spaceship or is on that spaceship. The only thing worse in my mind than not describing the main character or any character, for instance, is waiting until you're halfway through the book and then describing them. Because by then the reader has already built their own mental image of what this character looks like. And chances are really good that, you know, halfway through the book, when you finally get around to describing the character that you've been using since page one, whatever description you give is going to conflict with what the reader came up with. So this is why the best thing is to describe whatever it is, character, object, whatever, location, the first time it appears in the story, because that is when the reader is gonna build their mental image. So if you want to guide that image in any way, you need to do it the first time they encounter it, not later. And I do see books violate this. And yeah, as a reader, it's really annoying and it kicks me out of the story. Because like I said, it it pretty much always goes against what I was picturing. Now, this is challenging. And I understand that, especially when it comes to the main character. Now, it's not hard to describe any other character in the story because, you know, it's not that unbelievable if I'm in the point of view of a character that when they encounter another character that they would notice things about what they look like, even if they've known this character forever, they're still seeing them, right? So I think it's totally appropriate and it's not gonna be weird to give a brief description of that character. It can be a little more challenging with the main character, the point of view character, how to do that. But I think just do it in the very beginning when when the story starts, just describe them in that first paragraph and just, you know, just get it over with. What you do want to avoid is all the cliches, like they're looking in a mirror or something like that, because that's just really tired and overdone. And it's kind of like the the Swifties, the, you know, he exclaimed, you know, he ejaculated, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Instead of just saying he said, she said, you know, usually you just want to say he said, or she said, you don't want to use the the Swifties as they're called, the dialogue attributions that are, you know, more than he said or he asked be, because they're just kind of lame and yeah, they, they just don't go over well, especially when you use them a lot. You know, it's the same kind of thing with having the character look in the mirror so that you can describe them. Even if you work it in really well and it feels really natural, it's such a cliche that the reader is probably still going to notice it. And, you know, again, going with the philosophy that that good prose is invisible um, when it comes to fiction and stories, you're better off just giving a description. It'll be less of a of a uh, blinking light to the reader than if you um, have them looking in the mirror or some kind of reflection, especially if it's kind of convoluted or unnatural, how you have that happen. But even if it is natural and it makes sense, yeah, you're better off just describing them, I think. You know, don't start your story with the character brushing their teeth just so that you can describe them, is what I'm saying. All right, so the next thing I learned from the Wheel of Time books was, you know, how how to make unique, complex, and interesting characters. Each character in the story, and there are loads of them, has their own personality, their own motivations, etc. And this isn't just true for the point-of-view characters, and it isn't just true for the, quote, main characters. In fact, quite a few characters that, when they first are encountered in the story, uh, seem to be kind of one-time use, throwaway characters, end up becoming pretty major characters later on in the story. So, you know, for instance, you might see an innkeeper in an early book that just seems like this random innkeeper that they meet one time, but by the end of the story, he's actually a point of view character, and and that happens quite a few times in the books. That that kind of thing. So, even the kind of you know secondary or tertiary characters are still really well developed. Another thing I learned from these books is, is how to juggle multiple point-of-view characters, multiple character arcs, multiple plot arcs. Um, he does that very, very well. Another thing these books do extremely well that that's very useful for fantasy and science fiction is there is an incredible amount of depth to the setting and a history to the setting that you slowly uncover kind of like onion layer by onion layer over time as you go through the series. For example, the Age of Legends, which was thousands of years before the story takes place, by the end of the series, you've learned quite a bit about what the Age of Legends was like, so much so that they're going to make movies about it, which I can't wait to see. Everything that happens in the story has a historical context, but you are not bombarded with all of this at the very beginning of the story. Like you're reading an encyclopedia and I have read some very popular, at least among some people, fantasy series, for instance, where it's like reading an encyclopedia in the beginning, where you're just given all this information about the setting and the history that's not at all relevant right now in the story. Um, and it's a real slog to get through. And And there, there are specific books, I'm not going to name them, that... I have a lot of fans and I've tried to read them numerous times because people go on about how great they are, but I just can't get through the the slog of reading an encyclopedia for the first hundred pages or whatever it is. So yeah, I just can't get into them. Instead, in The Wheel of Time, you only gradually learn about things about the setting and the history throughout the series as they become relevant to what's going on right now. And that's the way to do it. So if you're wanting to learn more about how do I share all my wonderful world-building information with the reader in a way that isn't going to turn them off and bore them and is always going to seem relevant, uh, The Wheel of Time is an excellent study in how to do that. And I definitely recommend those books. You'll learn a lot about how to do that. The books show differences in cultures and how they can cause difficulties and misunderstandings between people from different cultures, and also how people can overcome those difficulties and misunderstandings and cultural differences. Among these cultural differences are things like the food that they eat, clothing, weaponry, and things like that, but also things like gender roles, how much individual choice someone has in their society, and things like that. And it's really well done and again, if, if you're wanting to learn how to better do things like that, um, these are great books to read to see how it can be done well. And finally, I think the books do a great job of illustrating how everyone grows up thinking that their culture, the way they were raised, is the only way or the best way to be and to live. And we see this again and again in the books where people are brought up a certain way And until they venture out of their tiny little area that they grew up in, they think that that's the way everybody is, and they think that's the way everybody should be. And only the characters in the book, or in the books, who are both well-traveled and open-minded, eventually come to realize that everyone thinks the way they were raised is the best way and that, you know, everybody's different in that way. You know, the way everybody is raised in different countries is different and everybody thinks their way is the best way. And it's only the people who see the world and learn about other peoples and places who come to realize that, you know, there's probably not a best way and, and everybody thinks their way is the best way and learn to have appreciation and, and tolerance for other cultures and other ways of, of living. So basically the, the books kind of teach you the whole idea of cultural relativism or cultural relativity from, from anthropology without ever using those words or having to like lecture you about it. But you just learn that by seeing these characters and how they behave and how they grow and change over time. And it's really well done. So yeah, those are, those are some of the big things I could think of that I learned from the wheel of time from the books. There's probably more. So so, if there's a, a glaring omission that, that I missed, let me know, and, and I'd be happy to uh, uh, share it on a future episode or, or in the Dis- Discord, or, or you could just let me know in the Discord so that uh, everyone else can know about it. Speaking of our Discord server, I want to say um, I added a new room to the server called Writing Goals. That room is available to patrons at, at tier one or higher, which is $2 a month. And uh, that's a place for, you know, if you are a writer and you're writing and you've set a goal for yourself, uh, whether that's for NaNoWriMo or or just in general, um, you can share that with us in there. And then uh, if you like, you, you can share uh, your progress toward that goal, whether it's a daily word count or a certain amount of time writing every day or every week or a project you're working on. And you want to finish it by a certain time, whatever your goal is, feel free to share it in the writing goals room and, and we can cheer each other on. If you would like to reach me, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at lexoutloudpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at lexstarwalker and you can call my voicemail 951 465 5391. And once again, please join our community on Discord. And you can connect with myself and other listeners and other writers and other readers. And we have a lot of fun in there. Uh, You can find links to all those things as well as a Discord server in the show notes for this episode or any episode at LexStarWalker.com. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, please consider uh, becoming a patron. Really appreciate all the patrons of the show. You all help me do this every month. I, I wouldn't be able to do this without the patrons. So thank you, patrons. And uh, I have a support page on the website as well. Uh, There are a lot of other ways that you can help me out too. In addition, or instead of becoming a patron, I have an Amazon referral link. I have an Audible trial link. You can get 30 days of Audible for free through my trial link and some other things as well. So thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode. I really appreciate your time and attention. And I'll be back soon with another one. And until then, Keep writing.